You may be seated and please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. As we mentioned earlier, this will be the text that, uh, by God's grace, will guide us through the Advent season, which I cannot believe uh, that we uh, are now officially in. The four weeks leading up to uh, Christmas has been, for generations, a time when the church, the Christian church, has gathered to reflect upon uh, what it means to wait upon the Lord, what it means to uh, consider his second coming as we considered his initial coming, his first coming. Um, my name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. Uh, and as we walk through this today, I want to, by God's grace, help us to understand something that I think is so elemental to the Christian life that a lot of times we forget it. And because we forget it, we often get frustrated by it. But ultimately, I think to be a Christian is to wait. To be a Christian is to wait. And I, I don't like talking about that because I don't want to be about that. Um, but this over and over again is what the Christian scriptures teach us about. In fact, David speaks about this often in his psalm writing. And in Psalm chapter 62, verse 5, he says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. So what we learn in the Christian life, uh, I wonder if you've experienced this, that we read a truth or a promise in the scriptures and we look around, look internally and all around us, and wait with longing and expectation for that promise to be fulfilled, for that promise to be realized. But what we understand about this waiting is we wait differently than anyone else. See, as a Christian, it, it does mean that we're going to wait a lot, but we never wait without hope. We wait with hope. And so it's that that I'd like for us to consider today and to help us learn uh, to wait upon the Lord today. We'll focus on hope from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. And I'd like to explore three elements of hope with you, three elements of hope from these verses the need for hope, the nature of hope, and the gift of hope. The need for hope, the nature of hope, and the gift of hope. I want to be available to God and to that end from his word, and so let's pray, let's ask for God's help, and then we will get to work. Heavenly Father, when we come to your word, uh, we're coming in very different ways. Some of us are very familiar with the story of Christianity, of the God of the Bible, many of us perhaps for the very first time opening to a text, wondering who is Isaiah and what is this about, what is this Bible? And so we thank you, Father, that no matter how we approach your word, you are very kind to approach us in such a way that we can taste and see that you, the Lord, are good of who you are and what you're up to. And so I pray that you'd help me to be clear and responsible with your word to that end today. And I pray for my friends, my brothers and sisters gathered together. Father, would you, would you help us? Because along all of the things, among the varying different things that we thought we needed this week, what we were desperate for was you. What we were desperate for was a word from the living God that, that reaches into the darkness and grips hold of us. And so, Father, forgive us for the voices and the things and the impulses that we relied upon and even indulged in this past week and help set our minds on Christ today, that we might live by the Spirit, as Paul has been instructing us about in, in Romans chapter 8, that we would live by the Spirit and not by the flesh. Um, so give us eyes to see, we pray, through your prophet Isaiah. We love you. We thank you for this word in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we've said, Advent uh, is a time where we learn to wait every, every season. And in order to grow in our understanding, what we do every season uh, during Advent time is go all the way back to the story of our faith from promise to fulfillment. 
And for those of you who grew up in the church, this can be like a wonderful time, or this can be like, I already know the point of the story. And so it can kind of be mundane or routine or something like that. And yet every, every year we do this, we, we move from promise to fulfillment. And, and God is so good through his word that, that whether we've heard this a thousand times or we've never heard it before, he is always faithful to speak in such a way where his word is fresh. And the way we know that is because in Hebrews, it says that his word is living and active. In other words, it's, it's different than any other word you'd read. That ultimately, whenever you read words on a page, it's a one-way transaction. There are words there, you read them, and you take them in. But if the word of God is living, then it does what one old preacher says, is read you back. So you read it, and then it reads you back. So have you ever gone to the same verse that you're like, I've been there a thousand times, I know this verse, and then it hits you, and away you go, oh, I've actually never heard it before. No, you've actually been hearing it. You just haven't been believing it. And that's a difference. There's a difference between hearing something again and actually freshly believing it. And that's why I love that the Bible never asks, have you heard this before? You know, Jesus never asked, have you heard this before? He's always asking people, do you believe? Do you believe? Do you trust? Are you giving your life to this? And so every year, we commit ourselves afresh to understanding the promise that moves into fulfillment. And this year, we'll look at the prophetic words of Isaiah, specifically Isaiah chapter 9. And whenever you come to Old Testament prophecy, it can be really confusing. So there's something really critical to keep in mind. This idea of double fulfillment, which may seem like a very complex idea, but ultimately what it means is that a prophet is speaking in a particular time to a particular people. But by God's Spirit, he's also speaking to all who would come after them. He's not just speaking about that moment. He's speaking about what is to come. And so though Isaiah speaks about a real situation, about 700 B.C., by God's providence, the Spirit of God has another situation in mind 700 years later. Right? So, so, so those two things may not be fully in focus for Isaiah, but because Isaiah is not the main writer of Isaiah, then there is something else going on. If God inspires Isaiah to write, then God may have something in mind that Isaiah could not see, which I think would actually preach to your soul this morning if you would hear it. That sometimes something's going on in your life that you just can't see yet, but God is up to something in the midst of that that one day will come to fruition, that one day will be fully realized. So we're actually more, fulfill, more familiar with double fulfillment than we actually understand. So Isaiah has something to say about 700 BC that God's Spirit also has something to say that will apply it about 700 years later. We might say it this way, that hope is given for today and for tomorrow in this passage. Hope is given in the moment and hope is also given for the future, which is really good news because if nothing else is clear today or tomorrow is that we need some hope. We need some hope. Am I preaching to you yet? We need some hope. And here the prophet Isaiah paints a pretty dismal picture. So if you're already in Isaiah chapter 9, move your eyes up a little bit to Isaiah chapter 8, verses 21 through 22. So we get a little bit of context for why he's delivering this hope as we crystallize what is the need for hope. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So what we see is a people who are distressed. They're hungry. They're enraged. They're contemptuous. They're rebellious. And if you've ever been on a road trip with children, you kind of get the picture, right? That's exactly what's happening here. Their world is filled with distress and darkness and gloom and anguish. And Isaiah is painting a very dark picture. Few of us probably have this as like a memory verse for our life or something that we've shellacked on a plate and put anywhere in our house as a really hopeful picture of what we are desiring God to do. 
See, in light of Isaiah's sins, God's righteous judgment and God's righteous judgment of their sins, things are not looking good. We realize from the start then of Isaiah chapter 9 that he doesn't just have people in general in mind, but a particular people. So look at 1, Isaiah chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And that phrase, Galilee of the nations, is actually really instructive and helpful. See, Zebulun and Naphtali were two tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel. And back in the day, Israel was actually divided into two kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And Zebulun and Naphtali were two tribes of that northern kingdom. And during this time of Isaiah's writing, that northern kingdom was actually under the domination of a Gentile nation known as Assyria. Assyria covers places like present-day Iraq, Turkey, Syria, and Iran. And Isaiah actually prophesied that this was going to happen in Isaiah chapter 8. So he knew that this was going to take place through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, spoke about it in chapter 8, and now writes extending from that into chapter 9. Now, because Israel was under this captivity in that Galilean region, under the power of a non-Jewish or Gentile nation, that's why it became known as the Galilee of the nations. So it was Galilee, that part of the world, but it was of the nations because it was being ruled and reigned over by people who were not from Israel. So the name tells us an important story, and it reveals a biblical pattern. The biblical pattern is simple, and you and I all have lived it, that people sin and it doesn't go well. That's the pattern. People sin, and it doesn't go well. This people's behavior defies the righteousness of God, and darkness then illustrates suffering and death, which results from sinfulness. Sin never leads to light. It never leads to hope. It never leads to joy. It always leads to the same place. People sin. It doesn't go well. It's dark. It's gloomy. There's suffering and death. See, in many ways, I think we already begin to get a sense of the devil fulfillment of Isaiah's words. After all, there's nothing unique about what's going on in the northern kingdom in 700 B.C., There is regretfully nothing spectacular about the biblical pattern. We all sin, and it never goes well. Paul even writes this to the church at Ephesus when he says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Here's what he says. Remember that you at one time were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He wanted people to remember who were no longer in the dark that you used to be. We forget pretty quickly from whence we've come. See, people sin and it doesn't go well. Paul builds on this biblical motif and he takes this theme of light and darkness and sort of crystallizes, puts flesh on it with the language of the New Testament of hope and despair. And so like the Northern Kingdom, we all spiritually and literally, whether we know it or not, are distressed hungry, enraged, contemptuous, rebellious, like every member of that church in Ephesus, we all need hope. And we all had no hope. Our world has been filled with distress and darkness and gloom and anguish in the middle of a pandemic. I don't think we need to illustrate this anymore. When we are in darkness and despair and we couldn't even be with each other, like the fact that this, the way we're gathering now is so hopeful, tells us the distress and darkness that we were in. I can't even see your faces, right? Do you see the pattern? People sin, it doesn't go well. There's darkness, there's despair, there's judgment, there's isolation from God. Fortunately, though, the biblical pattern is not done with just that. 
that people sin and it doesn't go well. God in the middle of that brings hope. Because of sin, we need hope. I think we could all use some hope today. So through this metaphor in history, the passage makes clear that we all need hope. We all need hope. But what does it look like? Because when we talk about hope, our minds can go in a a number of different directions. And so it's important that as we admit our need for hope, we need to talk about the biblical nature of hope as well. Or else we will cling to things that actually aren't hopeful, things that we think are going to uh, quench our thirst but actually make us more thirsty, things that we think will make us uh, quench our hunger, rather, or satiate our hunger but actually make us more hungry, or things that we think will give us light and actually will produce more darkness. That's how broken this world is. So what's the nature of biblical hope? Now, I think something fascinating, as I was studying again for this week, something fascinating about God's tendency to bring hope. He often brings hope or begins to weave hope in before we even know we need it. He begins to weave hope in at the very beginning of a story, and we're probably not even sure yet why are you being so hopeful, why are you grounding us in something right here, and then it gets dark and you go, oh, right? You look back and you go, oh, like that friend that you weren't sure, like, oh, we have something in common, and then suffering hits, and you go, oh, you got that story too. Oh, God actually built hope into this relationship before I even knew that I needed it. He does that all the time in the scriptures. See, when we look back to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we're introduced to hope before we're even confronted by the fullness of darkness. As I've already suggested, to be a Christian is to wait. But to be a Christian is to also be introduced to hope before darkness fully sets in. See, we wait, but we wait with hope. Here's what I mean, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 through 16. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So Isaiah is warning a particular king, King Ahaz. He's the king of the northern kingdom who's sort of getting cozy with the Assyrian empire, right? And he said, that's not a good idea. Don't do that. Don't, he's trying to dissuade him all the way up into chapter 7 to not get cozy, not to allege himself with a foreign empire who does not care and is rebellious against the God of the Bible. But because he does not listen, now Isaiah says, a son is going to be born. Your son, in fact, most people uh, agree, a, a man named Hezekiah who will replace Ahab as king. And so the last thing that a king wants to hear is, one, here's who you need to obey, not yourself. Here's what God wants you to do. And then you're going to be replaced. So Isaiah doesn't mince words. You don't listen to yourself. And if you you do listen to yourself and do what you want to do, another king is going to take your place. In particular, it's going to be your son. So there's dread and there's darkness, but the Lord is sending a sign of his power and his grace. He's sending hope. See, before the need for hope even was fully realized by God's people who were under the tyranny of Ahaz, and would have to weather the consequence of a tyrannical leader, the nature of hope is already being revealed. Hope in the short term is this actual child that's going to be born to set things right in the short term. And yet, as this story plays out, the long-term hope of Israel continued to find longing, to wait for another child to bring the fullness of this prophecy to fruition. And actually, from this text, one of the reasons we read it around Advent season is that from this text, and many like it, a biblical figure begins to emerge in the imagination of God's people. He'll go by many names through history, but in particular, he's called the Messiah. 
Emmanuel, which means God's, God with us. And in Matthew's account of the birth of Christ, he interprets the words spoken to Joseph by the angel, Joseph being Jesus' earthly father, and puts flesh on this messianic hope. And he does so by going to Isaiah chapter 7. Hear this from Matthew chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. All this took place, Matthew said, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, Matthew parenthetically says, which means God with us. So he goes back to Isaiah chapter 7. This wasn't just about Hezekiah. This was about the Messiah, right? So Matthew's like, are you picking up what the Lord has been throwing down for generations? It wasn't just a short-term hope. It was a long-term hope. He didn't just build in this light in the middle of that darkness of that people and that particular situation, but all of his people for all of time. That's the nature of hope. Israel sins, it doesn't go well, and Israel needs some hope. And this hope is woven into the story of God's people before they are even fully confronted with the darkness. God speaks hope not after despair, but in despair. God speaks light and brings light not after the darkness, but in the middle of the darkness. Make sense? Are you with me in this? That's, that's what makes hope hope. Many of us like a kind of hope after we've all figured it out. Then we go to Instagram and say, look how good it is. Very few of us like to talk about the hope we're clinging to in the middle of the mess. Because we're not sure how it's going to work out. We don't know if it'll look good. God is so bold and courageous and in control. He speaks truth in the middle of a situation that looks like anything but is true. He delivers light in the middle of darkness. See, and the way God brings hope tells us so much about the biblical nature of hope. The nature of hope in the Bible is always, in particular, centered on a person, not a particular situation. And I want to try to bring this home because I think we need to hear this. Hope is a person, church. It is not the promise of a situation changing. Hope is a person. Why is this so important for us to clarify? Because I don't think we believe this most of the time. Now, we might check that box if we gave like a biblical test on Sunday. we like, no, Jesus is the hope. But as we live, what are we actually believing? Hear me out. Nearly always when we think about hope or face our need for hope, we think about our situation and cling to anything that will promise to empower us or change the situation and the circumstance. See, too often our vision of hope is centered on our circumstance. Rather, it's centered on ourselves. We want something to happen. We want something to change. We want our circumstance to turn for our good, right? I mean, this, this, this may seem very natural to us. And therefore, we trust any like hap, like ha, life hack or organization or Instagram influencer that claims to have power over our bleak situation. In other words, I think we settle for a worldly concept of hope, and we wonder why we keep living without it. See, this is a brand of hope that has no need for God. This is a brand of hope that has no need for God. And God always leads us to a place where we need him. He never has ever led you to a place where you could just do it on your own. See, therefore, I think the way that we interact with hope and believe lies about hope reveals how much we need it. Here's what I mean. I'd like to take us to Mark chapter 6. So if you've got your Bibles, turn over to the New Testament. Mark chapter 6. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the first four books in the New Testament, biographies or gospels of Jesus. Mark 6, 45 through 52. Asking ourselves, what does the nature of hope look like? And how is it a corrective for how we often think about hope? Hope. 
Mark 6, verse 45, and following reads this way. Oh, that's Matthew, Jason. Matthew, Mark. I was like, that doesn't look good. That's a different point. Mark 6, verse 45 and following says this, Immediately, he, that's Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethesda, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Verse 51, and he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astonished, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So picture this. Jesus is on land. His disciples are at sea. It's really late, likely 3 to 6 a.m. That's that fourth watch period. It's stormy. It's terrifying. It's fair to say the disciples need some hope. They need some hope over their bleak situation. They need some hope in despair. They need some light in the middle of the literal and emotional darkness that they are in. They need some semblance of truth and power and grace to show up in real space and real time. And then Jesus walks on the water. And and I think many of us rightly give a lot of attention to that because it's amazing. Jesus walks on water. We should not overlook that. But it's interesting that Mark doesn't seem to dwell on that too long. Mark seems to be focused on something else as he retells the story. He doesn't stop there as if it's the point of the story. But notice, the walking on the water, not only is it not the main event, but it seems like Mark's attention is taken elsewhere. Look look back through this passage. Mark follows Jesus' actions beyond walking on water. In verse 48, it says that Jesus saw them. In the latter half of 48, it says that Jesus came to them. And then in verse 50, it says that Jesus spoke to them. And then as a culmination of all of that, verse 51, it says that Jesus gets in with them, into the boat with them. And then, only then, after the seeing and and the coming to them and the speaking to them and the getting in with them, only then does the wind cease. In other words, here's what I think the Lord would like to say to you today. Jesus gives himself to them before he changes their circumstances. Jesus first comes to them before their circumstances change. Jesus draws near to them. Do you see? Jesus himself, his presence and his power is the hope. What I think Mark knows and the disciples are experiencing is that hope is all about proximity to Jesus. In fact, if you read through the gospel according to Mark, every time the disciples get into despair, it's because they're separated from Jesus. They're never in despair when he's close. It's when they're separated from him. Hope is all about proximity to Jesus. Could that be something, my sister and my brother, that you need to hear today? Hope is a person, not a situation, nor the promise even that a situation will change. You see, our real need is not circumstantial because sin is not a circumstantial issue. It's a relational issue. 
This is what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 5, that we, did, we don't have peace with God and we need peace with God. Hope must be a person, not a situation. See, sin put us at odds with God before it put us at odds with the world. Therefore, our need, first and foremost, is to have peace with God. Therefore, hope must be a person. See, the need for hope is sin, and the nature of hope is Jesus Christ himself. And he, rather, hope is personal, not circumstantial. See, to be a Christian is to wait with hope, specifically to wait upon God. But not just that. Here's the beauty of the gospel. God calls us to wait upon him with him. It's a paradox of the gospel. God calls the people of God to wait upon the Lord, and he says, I'll draw near to you as you wait. So we wait for God, and we wait with God. So when Isaiah says in Isaiah 9, verse 2, if you flip back there, that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. He's not talking about a change of circumstance. He's talking about it all being unwittingly about proximity with God, the arrival of the one who would be called what? The light of the world. I think we all know that experience, that even though we've been reassured by the presence of God, we've been reassured by our community, we brought something to our group and shared, and they said, God will be with you. The next day, sometimes the situation doesn't change, right? That boss still acts a fool. You still don't have the money you need for rent. You, the situation does not change immediate. It seems like the Lord constantly wants to remind the people that he gets into the boat with us first before the, wave, the, the waves and the wind might cease. I think we all know this. I think we all know this experience, this persistent power of distress, of hunger, of rage, of contempt, of rebellion, what Isaiah's contemporaries were experiencing. Their world, like ours, was in distress and darkness and gloom and anguish, and that may not change tomorrow. But the gospel, the hope is that God enters into the distress. God shows up in the darkness. He experiences, church, the gloom and the anguish, anguish with us. Or for those disciples in the stormy sea, Jesus gets into the boat with them. Are you, are you with me yet? That's hope. I, I don't, I don't want a faith or a religion that just gives me good words to live by to try to apply tomorrow that I can figure it out. I want a God who gets in the boat with me. That's unlike anything anyone's ever come up with. That the God of the universe would not just say, I've got wisdom to download to you, that if you apply to your life, it'll work out for your portfolio. It'll work out for your marriage. It'll work out for your children. The God of the Bible says, that's not good enough for my prize creation. I'm going to get into the boat with you. I'm going to suffer with you. I'm going to feel the anguish with you. I'm going to feel the pain with you. I'm going to walk in the valley of the shadow of death with what? With you. That's a God to worship. Church, what if Jesus wants to give you himself before he changes your circumstance? What if he wants to open your eyes to his presence before he changes your situation? Do you want him more than you want your circumstance to change? You see, if what God does for us is more valuable than who God is and that God himself, we belittle hope and make it into another spiritual commodity just something we want from him, but we don't want him. Have you ever had a relationship like that work out? Where people just want stuff from you, they don't want you. They won't want to be in life with you, they just want stuff from you. As little as it works with human relationships, it works even more poorly with divine ones. Hope is not a commodity to be doled out transactionally by the divine. Hope is a person. 
a person who sees you, a person who comes to you, a person who speaks to you, a person who gets into life with you. And when he gets into life with you, all of a sudden it puts those wind and waves into context. All of a sudden those wind and the waves start making sense and then, if not immediately, they eventually do subside. Isn't this what Jesus instructed his disciples? In this world you will have trouble, but fear not. Why? Because I've overcome the world. In other words, those wind and the waves are not in control. I am. Your situation does not dictate your future. I do. What other people are saying and doing around you, that doesn't tell you who you are. I tell you who you are. That's the kind of enduring hope that the Christian has. See, to be a Christian is to wait, but to be a Christian is to wait with hope, with a person named Emmanuel, God with us, the light of the world who has shined in the darkness. See, people sin. It doesn't go well, but God brings hope. God shows up. That's the nature of hope. The need for hope is sin and despair and darkness. The nature of hope is God himself, Jesus Christ, the God who is with us. Now quickly, briefly, the gift of hope. In short, I think the gift of hope is assurance. It's about assurance and it's about transformation. Hope may be about what's to come, but in Christ, it has an immediate effect upon you and upon me. To, to put it in the language of the Apostle Paul, even though creation is groaning inwardly for full redemption, those who are in Christ are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Hope may not change our circumstance immediately, but it changes us right away. It may not change our surroundings right away, but it transforms our heart. We discover this reality in Isaiah's prophecy. See, Isaiah, this, this, is, this is wild. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 through 7 is talking about the future, but did you notice as we read it today? It's in the past tense language. Isaiah is talking about the future in the past tense. Think about that. This is a common literary device of prophetic writings, that God's purposes are as sure as his presence. God's word is as good as reality. God's promises are as good, are as powerful, are as sure as the past tense. A leading Old Testament scholar, J. Alec Mortar, explains that the light and hope of Isaiah 9-2 is immediately evident to the eye of faith. Those who walk in darkness can see the light ahead and are sustained by hope. The world's sense of hope, I think, often is, is communicated in this very simple word picture, that I can see the light at the end of the tunnel, right? Whether work is slamming you right now and you don't know whenever vacation might be and all of a sudden you just get, oh, maybe after I turn that in. Or in some sort of relational desert, you're just not sure who's really with you and who's not. Or in a parenting desert where you're just like, oh my goodness, would they ever obey a single word? I actually, And whenever a little bit of hope shows up, we go, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel, right? Church, we got better hope than that. We got better hope than light at the end of the tunnel. See, for the Christian, the light of Christ has actually entered into the tunnel warmed our hearts, and by faith has given us a vision, an understanding to not just walk towards the light, but walk in the darkness no matter how long it lasts. You may never see the light at the end of the tunnel, but the light has come to you. You see, God's presence reassures us of a future, and his presence instantly transforms us into a people of hope. See, what's interesting about the New Testament writings about hope as it's often and just as much used as a verb as it is a noun. 
where God calls us to be a people of hope and he communicates that he has already given us the gift of hope. See, the need for hope is sin, despair, and darkness. The nature of hope is a person, Jesus Christ, God with us. And the gift of hope is sight in the middle of the darkness. See, people sin. It doesn't go well. But God brings hope. God shows up and he gives us eyes to see. So may we be a people who see clearly because of the gift of hope. Heavenly Father, we are desperate and in great need. So comfort us with this word encourage us with this word and make us a people ready to obey and see your kingdom come more and more because of the gift, the nature, and the need that we have for hope. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.